You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. I'm going to start, I'm going to finish out the year with a joke. So I, we, were, we every year or every morning we do these Sunday things and the tech guys are here. We come in early and we kind of walk through the slides and everything on the screen. So I told him I was going to do a joke and I just get this blank stare. Like, like that's the joke <laughs> that I'm going to do. No, so really a joke. So there's this kindergarten teacher, you teachers out there will love this. There's a kindergarten teacher who's going to, they're going to assess their kids. Um, so, you know, they're still young, they're still learning things, and, but they want to kind of check out you know, how, what they know about the animal kingdom and like farm life and stuff. And say, just, just a teaching thing, just to kind of assess where they're at. And so this teacher is going to give some characteristics of some animals and then ask for some connections that the kids might get. So she says, uh, okay, um, what do we get from a big old hen? Right? And so, you know, little Susie fires her hand up and, and uh, she just he calls, okay, little Susie. And she says, uh, eggs. She goes, yes, very good, really good. That's great, great answer. All right, perfect. And so then she says, okay, so... Um, what do we get from big fluffy sheep? And the little, you know, Isaac in the back, you know, jumps up. He's like, she goes, okay, Isaac. And he says, whoa, all right. Yeah. She's thinking, hey, these kids are doing great. You guys are doing really good. Um, so then he says, okay, so what do we get from a, from a, from a big old pig, you know, and little Eli in the front. He, he didn't even wait for it to be called. He jumps up, he bacon, because he's a guy, you know, we love bacon. So she's like, man, you kids are just doing wonderful. And then she asks, so what do we get from a big fat cow? And everybody's hand goes up all at once, and she goes, okay, what is it? And, you know, little Bobby in the back says, homework. <laughs> all right. So, I, no, wait. Now, now, so I apologize to you teachers in the room. I did not write the joke. I'm sharing the material. It's a, it's a, this is why I get that look from the tech guys when I say, I'm going to do a joke. They just go, oh, really? Okay. I love you, Rick. And I, I'm sorry. It's, it's, I had to. And do it. All right, so back to what we're talking about. I just, I just thought it was a funny joke. Actually, I had a, a family member of a patient tell me that right before they went to surgery. So I, was, I don't know why that is important. But all right, so we're going to talk. So I talked about how I love how we, we got to do our identity check every time we do a service. And so the idea of identity has really been kind of weighing on me lately. Um, who, who am I? Who are we? Um, and what does that mean? And, and um, so I know when we talk about, in our current culture, we talk about identity, everybody bristles just a little bit because I think we have an identity crisis going on in our, in our world, not just the U.S., but everywhere. Um, but I'll tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to get up here and rail against all these weird identities that people are, or the misunderstandings of who we are. I don't think that's helpful. I don't find it helpful for us to stand on a hill and call out all the, the improper things and, and the mistruths and the misunderstandings. Um, in, in the scripture, it tells us that um, we, we know Christ Jesus, and through that, we know the truth, because Jesus is the truth, and he says, and the truth will set you free. He didn't say screaming out against the lie will set you free. He says knowing the truth will set you free. 
And so I think it's important for us then to, to take it from that perspective and say, so what do we know that's true about our identity? I think we're supposed to engage our world in a way where we can go to someone and not have to rail against them, but simply uh, rail in favor of Jesus and his identity. I think it, we're better off to describe who God is and his truth than to try to push back against another truth. That doesn't mean if somebody asks you a question, you can't answer. Or if somebody, you know, you're in a discussion, you can't say, well, that's not really correct, and God says this. But it just means our, our, our approach should never be to know all about the negatives and just you know, be able to rail those off. We, it's better for us to know about the truths and we can speak that. If you think of truth as light, which the scripture often describes it as, and you think of uh, falsehood or lies as darkness, the, when the light shines on the darkness, the darkness is dispelled. So the truth is the light, and that's what we're called to carry forward. So rather than you know, be, be the anti-culture people where we just scream and holler about, oh, I can't believe people think they want to be a sheep or you know, boys, girls, whatever. I think it's better for us to just simply say, this is truth, and I know it's truth, and I can show you where Scripture said it's truth, and that will help us engage that better. So we're going to tackle this first. We're going to go back to the very beginning where God starts his whole program. We're going to go look at Genesis, just a couple of verses, but I just want to make a couple of quick points. So this is a description where God's making man and woman. Uh, So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, It gives how he formed man. He says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So that was man. Several verses down in Genesis uh, 2, 21 to 22, he says, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was asleep, he took part of the man's side, closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the party taken from the man. So uh, it's clear just from these two passages that God made mankind. Man did not make man. Mankind did not make man. Mankind did not make woman. We are created. We are not creator. Okay? And and I'm not trying to overly hammer this point, but you you get what I'm saying, right? Everybody's got that point? So it's it's a hard point, and it's important that we recognize that. Um, So... From that point, we say, so what, characteristic, what characteristics did God bestow on us as his created uh, beings, as his created people? So, for instance, um, you know, barring like strange things, uh, people have two arms, two legs. We have ten fingers, toes, two eyes, two ears. Those, those are the characteristics about us that God created. God decided that that's how we would be, you didn't get a say. Your thumb did not get to decide if it was going to be on the lateral side or the medial side of your hand when it's palmed. I mean, it's, no, it's where God said it was going to be because God made those determinations. Let me, let me liken it to another example that's maybe a little easier to understand. If you're a painter and you're going to paint an image, um, the artist determines where the color goes and where it doesn't go. The artist determines where the light is and where the dark is. Now there's a lot, and the artist determines what the final image is supposed to be when it's done. And he knows that before he starts and he lays it out. Now there's a lot of players in this act. There's a lot of parts that move around and there's, some, there's a lot of elements involved. I mean, there's, we've got multiple paints. We've got all the different colors he might use. We've got the canvas itself. 
We've got brushes and probably several of those. We've got that little board, paint board with all the blotches on it. Somebody probably knows what that's called. I don't paint oil stuff, so I don't know what that's called, but whatever that's called. So, and then there's also the finished image that when you, there's all these things that are in play. None of those things get a say in what the image is. The paint doesn't decide if I'm going to be here or there. Now the paint gets moved, so things get acted upon. The brush gets moved by the painter. The paint gets moved and, and layered and smeared and whatever and mixed by the painter. The canvas gets things put on it by the painter. And the final image is the result of the painter's desire to make the image. But none of those things were active. They were passive players in this. And that's why the painter brought about what he was intending to bring about. See, self-determination was not available to the painting or any of the parts of the painting. And if it had been, quite frankly, I'm not sure that the image would be what the original painter intended it to be because all these things would be trying to weigh in. You, but, and you see where I'm going with this, right? I mean, you, you're seeing already, well, oh yeah, he's going to get, well, God's the painter. And, okay, so I, I get that. So we've already determined now that God made mankind. We, we just talked about that. I mean, that's the hard point. Okay, but here's where um, here's where we differ exactly uh, from the painting analogy, which is imperfect, right? Um, we do have some self determination about our identity, or actually, let me say that more correctly: we possess the illusion of self determination about our identity. Here's what David says in Psalm 130, 139. So this is about God as this painter image. It says, for you form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. That's God's determination. And yet we have, we think, we have this illusion where we can self-determine. The problem is this. This, this self-determination that we often think we possess has zero bearing on the reality of what God created. I'm going to say that again. We can choose your own identity, but it will have little or no bearing on the reality of who you are as a created being. And the reason why is because we don't possess the authority or the power to self-determine. We were never given that. We are created beings. It is God's purview and God's purview alone to make ultimate decisions about his creation. Only God decides about the creation. We, we fool ourselves when we think we have a say. Any work that is created by anyone, the, uh, any author of any work, whether they be a painter, a sculptor, a writer, a videographer, a kid making sandcastles, whatever it is, that author alone has the sovereign uh, the, the sovereign power over what that thing is. 
The thing itself cannot self-determine. And this is our first main kind of take-home point today. And that's this. We lack the authority or power to self-determine our identity. And it is solely God's purview to make ultimate determinations about his creation. And our problem is that we misunderstand these facts and we conflate those when, we, when we're given this freedom that God grants us to accept his plan, to accept his identity, or to look around and maybe try to find our own. See, we're given this kind of freedom. The painting wasn't, but we are. And the problem is when we misunderstand what God's original true authority and purview is, then we start seeking these other things. See, the normal human struggle is that we look horizontally for our identity, which is mean we look, we look at created things, things in creation, to try to identify, uh, gain our sense of identity, our sense of value, our sense of purpose. It comes from the things that we can see, but these are created things. And they're not always bad. I mean, it, it could be your marriage, could, could be your job, uh, it could be that you're into fitness, you know, your amazing body like this one, you know. Uh, come on. It, um, I could retrain you guys on the courtesy laugh. I've done it before. <laughs> we can do it again, you know. So if, if David looks like he thinks he's trying to be funny, I'll just giggle. Uh, anyway, no, it could be all those. And those aren't bad things. Fitness is good. Marriage is good. Having a job and, and having income, those are good things. But when we confuse these things, when we confuse these things with the who we really are, and we start relying on some attribute of this thing and taking that and trying to impute it to ourselves like, oh, that's where I get my value and that's where I get my importance, then things start going kind of sideways. And the reason it's a struggle, the reason it goes sideways is because we are hardwired. We are created from the beginning to gain our identity vertically. We are supposed to be uh, getting our identity and understanding our identity comes from the creator and that we simply walk in his identity for us rather than seeking out our identity in some of these things that we can see. If we would seek and desire to be what he made us to be, that would be the most flourishing, the most beneficial, the most fulfilling life you can have. Because that's what you're made to do. Searching for, and actually I'll go this far. Searching for identity horizontally, that means in created things, it's idolatry. It's idol worship. Because what you're doing is you're placing something created above the creator. And you're saying, you know what? I'm going to draw my identity. I'm going to find those attributes in that that I think will satisfy me and make me who I am. And, and when we start taking on these characteristics of the created thing as, as, as a true identity, it starts to reshape in our mind what we think identity means and what it is. And our image then doesn't reflect God's anymore. It's tarnished and it's fractured and it's broken and it's a, a dull, broken image. And this is our second real main point, and that's this. We're hardwired to get our identity from God, the creator, rather than created things. He made us to be that way. And so when we start searching these other places, it doesn't feel right. 
which means we continue to search and we continue to search and we find the next thing. Oh, I'm going to try that religion or I'm going to try this area of focus or I'm going to be a super mega professional guy. And you just, you're unfulfilled. It never seems like you're always waiting for that next big thing that I can do to, to, to define who I am. I'm going to save the world or I'm going to be a race car driver or whatever it is. You go, that, when I get there, then I'm going to go, whoa, this is, that's who I was meant to be. Now, if we step back again to Genesis, just for a minute, we already read that God made mankind. I, I know I'm hammering this point, but it's, it's super important that we get it, right? And, and we talked about his desire to be the sole influencer of who our identity is or what our identity is. The problem is we go from Genesis chapter 2, which we read, we, we go straight into chapter 3, which is where Adam now decides that he's going to try to identify with some created thing and let that be the primary identifier of who he is. He seeks after the knowledge represented in the tree of knowledge. And he, he's like, well, if I, you know what? If I do that, then, that, then I can be the same knowledge that God, it, it, I'll have this other identity thing. And so once again, he, he starts seeking after the created rather than the creator. Fooling himself like he's sovereign over who he really is. Now, he didn't do it by himself. He had a little help. I mean, he had uh, the, the God's rival, right, came as the serpent and kind of coaxed him into this. However, he had a decision to make. He, it was put before him, and he chose. And he chose to deny God, to abandon God's identity for himself and go out and seek his own. And when that happened, this vertical connection, this vertical, uh, this man-God connection that existed when we, our only identity was in him is now broken. It's now separated. It, it, it drives a wedge in between God and his creation. You see, God's perfect and in his perfection and glory and his purity and his righteousness, he can't, he can't bind himself to something that's false and broken and impure and sinful. So that binding is gone. It's, it's been, it's been uh, disconnected. Now here's the good news. God wasn't thrown off by this. This wasn't like uh, God was like, oh my gosh, what, what are we going to do? God didn't do that. See, God from the very beginning, he knew being all-knowing, he knew that man was going to corrupt his own identity in some way. And he had a plan already in his mind, already probably set things in motion already that would redeem the identity of mankind back to himself. He was going to overcome the identity crisis that was created in the garden. And we just celebrated yesterday the initial launch of that plan. You see, when Jesus came, Jesus came to earth. So really, God comes to earth as a man, takes on flesh, becomes like the created man. And he comes, interestingly enough, he comes to a super poor family in a dark and dismal way, in a humiliating birth, in a stable. And then God chooses to announce this great, I'm launching my plan to even people that are poorer yet, the shepherds, I mean, that's, that's the low life in that, in that day. 
Now, I don't believe that the shepherds were thrown off completely by the idea that God was bringing a redemption. They've been talking about redemption for thousands of years. They were waiting and waiting. I think they were completely dismayed and thrown off by the manner in which God chose to intervene to fix this crisis. I think that was the big thing. I don't think they were unaware of the plan in, in general. But now through this, through Jesus' coming, we get to regain our correct identity. And, and why is that? We do it because Jesus becomes man. So we had the first, first creation. First created man was Adam. Initially, he had the perfect identity God wanted him to, but he fell. He chose. He stepped away, and he goes, I'm going to look for my identity outside of God. I'm going to look for something uh, that, that defines me, but it'll be something God made rather than God himself. Now what we have is we get an opportunity because Jesus says, you know what? I am now the new created man. I'm the new man. Uh, and scripture calls him the second Adam, the new Adam. He's, he's, the, he's, the, he's the part that we've been waiting for that can now connect us with the correct identity. Jesus walked his life in the perfect identity of what God had created him to be. He didn't look outside of God for his identity. He didn't look outside of God for his characteristics and for his needs. He knew his only identity was in God all the way through. And because of that, our connection to God can be restored through Jesus as our mediator, um, we can seek and find our new identity in Christ, who then also took the burden of our sin and our suffering on himself as well. So the, the, the other barrier was that we had this, this, the thing that separated us was taken care of, and then Jesus said, now I'm also the new man. Find your identity in me. And our part then is to surrender the old identity. You have to give it up. The self-serving, the broken, the, the uh, identity, uh, we give that back to Jesus so he can give us a new identity. We, become, we get to take part in the new Adam, the new creation. And through that, we have a, a restored connection to God. And it wasn't possible before Jesus. It just wasn't possible. Paul writes in a letter to the church at Corinth, and he explains it this way, this new identity thing. He says, uh, this is uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no, no longer. He's talking about spiritual. Okay? Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away, and behold, new things have come. Paul is saying that when you are following and walking in Christ, you're a different, completely new man, woman. You're now aligned with the new Adam, Jesus. You're not aligned with the old Adam. Your identity is restored in Jesus, and God can now bind himself to you rather than have a wedge that there was prior to Christ. Isn't this a beautiful picture? I mean, I just love this image. We are made new. That, that's really not something our culture can grasp very well. We no longer identify with the old places and the old things and the old attributes that we took our, our cues from to define who we were. We seek and find our true self in Jesus. You know, um, I've, I've heard people talk about 
oh, yeah, but I don't want to give up who I am so I can be part of a church or whatever. No, 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 no. Through Jesus, we find our true identity. Our true identity is when we surrender, we get our true identity. We don't lose our true identity. We gain it. But only in Jesus. And this is our uh, third take-home point. I've only got... I'm going to steal from Steve because he does this a lot. But I want to get 12 points, so we're going to be a little while longer. I'm just kidding. This is the last point. <laughs> Sorry, Steve. Um, we are granted a new God-centered identity through Jesus Christ. This sounds really simple, and it is. But it takes our surrender. Now, this doesn't mean that the world and all its trappings, and all its loud voices, and all its loud uh, enticings to identify yourself based on something that it offers, doesn't mean that's just going to go away. That still exists. It means this. You can settle in your identity in Christ despite all of the noise and the outcry and the world trying to tell you who you are. Jesus has already told you who you are. And how do we do this then? We do it by following Jesus. You follow Jesus. Now, it's not, this is not some religious cliche I'm trying to throw out, some crazy idea where you go, yeah, okay, follow Jesus. No, really. That's it. You follow Jesus. It's a life spent in Christ and him in you. It doesn't mean you come down and pray a prayer one time. It means you're following after Jesus. There's not some magical prayer. You can search the scriptures. You will not find the sinner's prayer. That I was taught from the time I was three. How you, this, is, this is how it works. And then you come and pray and you walk away and you go, oh, it's all done. No, 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 no. Jesus said, follow me. You follow Christ. And then you keep his identity. You maintain his identity. And then Jesus talked about it himself. How do you get and keep his identity? This is, uh, this is in the first part of uh, John chapter 15. Just, it's not going to be on the screen. Just listen to this. And it seems repetitive, but I think he's trying to make the point. And he does it very well. This is Jesus' words. I'm the true vine, and my father... I'm going to stop right there for a second. There are many vines. We've been talking about that this morning. The world will tell you that you can plug into that thing or you can plug into that plant or you can plug into that thing and that you can, that you can attach yourself to that. Those are false vines. So this is Jesus. He starts right out of the gate. I'm the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and they cast them in the fire and they're burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I've also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. That is amazing. But he says it over and over and over again. Abide in me. What what does that mean? That means stay connected to. That's why he gives the vine and the branch. If the vine, if the branch is connected to the vine, it will produce fruit. You can't disconnect and continue to bear fruit. And if you're not bearing fruit, God's going to start really hammering on you. And you need to be thinking, is he going to toss me aside? He's not going to use me? Is it, what, what's my place then? Stay connected to the vine. Our fruit then is to reflect Christ to the world. And there's so many ways you can, you can I'm not going to go down the rabbit holes in here, but you know, think, of the, think of the fruit of the Spirit. That's the actions or the mannerisms. But when you're, when you're portraying and giving, giving out uh, or, or reflecting the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, if, you get, if those are coming out of you, that is what you're doing. You're reflecting Christ to the world because he is the author of those things. And we get to be image bearers to of God to a world that desperately needs a new identity. We're in the midst of a just an identity crisis in our world. Like probably in my lifetime, I've never seen anything like it. I'm sure it'll get worse. They need a new identity and they need the church, believers, followers of Christ to be the one to demonstrate that identity to them. You don't have to go yell at them for their current identity. You demonstrate the new identity. That's our fruit. And we keep our identity by abiding and following Jesus, staying connected to that vine. And there's several kind of components to this. I, you, could, you could try to hammer this out and give, give a list, but it really isn't useful. But it's things like this. Read Scripture. Read Scripture together. Let, your, let, let the words of the Scripture be spoken so that you can hear them. You can sharpen each other's faith. You can gather with other followers. Share in joy. You don't have to get hyper-spiritual. Enjoy a meal together and, and make peace wherever you are, and you're reflecting Christ. Go to dinner and just have a great time, but stay within the, within the guardrails Christ has set for you, and you'll be a witness you don't have to have a bullhorn on the corner of the street calling people, you know, bringing damnation and fire on everybody. Jesus himself said, I didn't come to condemn. He came to bring the truth. I'm the truth. I'm the life. That's Jesus' words. And we can receive the rest and the peace that Jesus brings if we keep the God of peace close. I'm going to read one, one last verse here, and this will be on the screen. In Philippians 4, so this is, this is part of that mindset that I'm, I just want to kind of leave you with. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good, of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. 
Nowhere in there is there a list about I'm supposed to dwell on whether or not a Democrat or a Republican got elected or whether some guy that was born a boy thinks he's a girl or whether or not there's a, a bathroom that's got two signs on it instead of one. I'm, those, are, those are things you, could, you can understand and, and, and rightly, adjust, uh, rightly uh, dis- decide if they're good or not. But that's not what you dwell on. We dwell on what's good and true and lovely and honorable and what's peaceful and the truth of Christ as your identity. You dwell on that. And the world will see. Because that won't be, that won't, that'll be different. It'll be different. Now, one, of the, one other way that we can, I mean, and there's multiple ways, again, to, to fellowship. You get to pray. That helps you stay close. And when you pray, don't, it's not a monologue. Don't monologue God. He, he's not really that impressed with what you had to say, I'm guessing. Right? I think he did a pretty good job on the Rocky Mountains. I mean, I'm not sure you can add much to what God, you know. But go to him with your petitions. Tell him how great he is. And then do this, which is we don't do probably very good in our American culture. Stop and listen. Maybe he wants to say something. Listen. Listen for that little still small voice. Or an impression. I'm not saying it has to be audible. Could be. Don't count it out. God spoke to Moses through a burning bush. Just saying. But there's another way that we get to share in Christ's identity, and that is through a ceremony we call communion. Now, the beautiful thing about this is this is a ceremony that's gone on for thousands of years, right? Since the people of Egypt were rescued, or people of Israel were rescued rescued out of Egypt by God using these elements as reminders for them. So the unleavened bread, which they had to make... The reason they did unleavened bread is because they didn't have time to make bread that would rise and all that. Just make some bread because you're going on a journey because God's going to rescue you and you're escaping. So they did the bread. And then he also took and he said, I want you to splash the sacrificial goat's blood on your doorpost. Then I'll know that you're my people because you know what that means. You understand the blood sacrifice. So that's my people. And this has gone on. And every year they'd come back at Passover and they would celebrate it. You were supposed to go to Jerusalem and do it. And and we had this great Passover meal. There's many more elements to it, but that's the primary ones. And Jesus then, right before he died, he was going to Passover with his disciples and he gave instructions. They went into this upper room and they they had had the meal. And Jesus now is going to give a new identity to the Passover meal. New identity to these elements that for thousands of years had meant one thing. He's, no, I'm, I'm going I'm to redefine those. I'm, I'm going to give you the new Adam identity for the bread and the cup. And, and, and he said this. He said, now this bread, it, it doesn't just represent hastily leaving and escaping. It's going to represent my body, which is going to be your way of escape. My body that I will willingly allow broken for you to, to pay the sacrifice to, to fulfill God's law and, and then he passed around and said take the bread and, and then he took the cup and he said now this is now I'm going to re, redefine this too I'm going to give it a new identity it's now my blood, my blood not the lamb's blood not just, and you don't just sprinkle it on the doorpost he says, he says it's going to be the blood that you're going to be God's going to apply it to your heart he says, so this is now my blood broken, or poured out for you because it's going to pay for your sin, pay for your error. 
And then they drank the cup. And then Jesus followed through. In a few days, he was crucified and raised again to prove he was telling the truth. And now we get to, on a regular basis, we get to engage in the same ceremony and we take the new meaning from the new Adam who gave it the new identity. And through that, we remind ourselves of our new identity in Christ. It's, it's a humble time. And I, I, we do. It's, it's right. Paul taught on this in the scriptures. It's right that we think about our heart and where we're at. And we don't want to be holding grudges. And we don't want to have things that are in us that are dark. And, 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 and take this because we're identifying with the purest of pure in Jesus. God through his son. But it's also, and I think sometimes we forget, it's also a great celebration. It's joyful. This, this reconciliation that we, that we describe with this wonderful ceremony is just wonderful. It's joyful. So you're prepared for it, but then when you take it, remember the joy, remember the excitement. He rescued his people before, and then he did it again in a more perfect way so that we can be part of the new Adam. So I think everybody got a little, the dual cup container thing. These are kind of cool. So we're gonna do this together. I'm just gonna walk through and use the words Jesus used. Actually, before we do that, I'm gonna give you guys a minute. I want you to think about where, where you're at. Do you, have, do you have something you need to take to the Lord? Say, you know what, Lord? I'm just gonna lay that down. I'm just gonna lay it down. You know what to do with that, and I'm tired of carrying it, whatever it would be something against a brother or just something in your life you're like you know what, what am I, I just need to let that go just take a minute go before the Lord and say you know make sure my heart's right I, wanna, I want to celebrate in this but I understand the depth of it as well so we'll just do that for a minute and then we'll walk through and eat and drink together <laughs> 